there are points in your life where someone does something or you experience something. And at the time it was devastating, but it really just showed to me that it, it's not gonna be an easy road, but if this is where you wanna go, then you gotta push forward and be persistent. And when, when I learned of the, the word grit, I thought, geez, do I know what that word means. Hello, and welcome to Agnes Scott College's podcast, Journeys to Leadership, where we explore the paths of inspiring women leaders from around the globe. I'm Leo Kediazak, president of Agnes Scott, and the host of this podcast. I hope that our guest stories not only encourage you, our listeners and leaders of today and tomorrow, but they also inspire you as you take the next steps in your own journey. Today's guest is a proven innovative leader. She has successfully created programs, initiatives, and policies in support of equitable economic growth and community empowerment objectives. She has significant experience in small business, economic, and community development, operational efficiencies, problem solving, and financial stewardship. She received her BS in political science from Pritzker College, a master's in urban planning and Latin American affairs from UCLA, and her PhD from University of Laverne. Please join me in welcoming the president and CEO of Invest Atlanta, Dr. Eloisa Clementich. Welcome to Journeys to Leadership, Eloisa. Thank you so much for having me. We're delighted to have you. On our journeys to leadership, we understand that leadership doesn't just happen. It's a journey. During our time together today, we want to explore your journey, the ups, the downs, the surprises, all of it, or at least as much as we can fit into this segment. So let's begin. First of all, where did you grow up? So I grew up in California, in Southern California, in a small town, well, small town, city, Rosemead, California. So it was, uh, if you're familiar where the Rose Parade happens, I'm on the south side of California uh, from where Pasadena is. But just to give you a sense of where it is. Well, we're all familiar with the Rose Parade, but what was it like growing up there? Was it a small town feel? Um, I have to tell you, it was, it was a small community. At the time, there were uh, a lot of uh, Hispanics in the neighborhood, so felt very much at home. And it was a very much a small field. I could walk to my baseball practice. I could, I didn't walk to school. My mom had me in another school, but I d was able to go to the park and hang out with my brothers and all of their friends. So let's back up here a second. You said baseball practice. So you played baseball? Oh, uh, well, okay. So this is one of my claims to fame. What, but I could only, it's interesting because you talk about journeys and how you later on in your life do you kind of figure out what happened. So long story short, I grew up four brothers myself, so we're five kids in the family. I grew up playing baseball with army men, didn't wear my first dress until I think I was 17 because my mother forced me. But in either case, definitely was a tomboy. So we used to play baseball all the time my brothers and so when I was old enough I said mom it's time to go register for me to go play baseball and she said um sorry Miha, girls don't play baseball it's like what do you mean girls don't play baseball she goes no it was then the little league was only for boys and so I was really devastated because I was pretty good oh. um and in either case my mom said well you could do cheerleading so I had a choice 
you become a cheerleader and at least get a little close to the field or you sit and be in the crowd. So I decided to be a cheerleader that first year for the Pirates. And it was myself and my friend Jennifer and Maya. So I didn't know this until years later, but my mom was on the board with Jennifer's mom who was on the board and they advocated for us and they kept saying, it's not fair. We got to allow for girls to join if they want to. I think the board got so tired of both parents. They finally said, will you just let those girls join <laughs> because we can't stand their parents anymore. So love that <laughs> women advocating for girls. Absolutely perfect. So that's exactly what happened was as a result, the next year they opened it up and said girls could now try out for baseball, but we would only be able to get on a team if a coach was going to take them on. So there was only one team, ironically, that had a coach, Coach Bill, that decided to take on girls, of which my brother happened to be a team player of. So Coach Bill said he'll take on the girls. Well, we tried out, got accepted. Coach Bill took us on. We were the first girls in Little League to play, and we were the first girls, obviously, on the Pirates. And we started on the bench. We were very, very impressed because I was much better than some of the guys on the field. But... Luckily, not, he didn't get hard hurt, but one of them got hurt one game, and so they didn't have a choice but to put us in, and we never sat on the bench again. Well, congratulations and shout out to Coach Bill for opening up his team to girls to play, and congratulations to you and to your mothers um, for ensuring that that could happen. Yeah. So you were a trailblazer at a very young age. I'll just tell you, we all rely on each other. Had my mom not stepped up to the plate, had Jennifer's mom not stepped up to the plate, I bet you would have gone several more years without girls being able to play baseball. So what was your dream at that time? Was it to be a professional baseball player or when you were young, what did you think you were going to be? You know, it's interesting. I really wasn't, I didn't think about what I wanted to be until I got into high school. I went to an action all-girl high schools, Ramona Convent in Alhambra, and when that wasn't easy for me either, by the way, but I'll get back to that story. But when I finally got to that school, I was in Spanish class and my Spanish teacher, then Miss Diegas, said, I want you to write down everything you like to do. And I remember that list. It was, I wanna travel, I love to speak languages, I wanna make a difference in the world and I wanna help people. And she was like, oh, you gotta go into political science. I was like, okay. There I go. So since then, I was on a trail to get into political science. I didn't have a clue what that really was or what I was going to do, but I knew I wanted to help people. And that's still the passion that drives me today. That's fantastic. How did you decide where to go to school? And then how did you get to Atlanta? So when I was younger, uh, so I mentioned Ramona Convent, by the way, I just as a small side note, this was an all-girl high school, private Catholic institution, and I applied to get in. And I don't know many other girls how they are, but I was never good at taking tests. And they relied on their whole entry on test scores. So I didn't get in, and I remember coming home that day and being devastated. I literally just cried. And my mom was, like, trying to be empathetic, and I kept crying. It's just being more empathetic. And she came, finally, she came into the room and was like, all right, I am tired of you crying you get up and if you really want to go to that school you do something about it and I'm like oh, what 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 happened to being all nice mom at first I was very very upset with my mom uh but then recognized she was right like you can if this if you really want to go there then crying is not going to help you get there 
So for the entire summer, almost every day, I'd go in <laughs> to Ramona Convent and sister's office and we'd knock on the door and be like, yes, it's, uh, it's Eloise. So we just want to know if you've, you've reevaluated your decision. <laughs> Kid you not, at some point, I went every single day. I think I was in sister's nerves that she finally said, will you give this kid a shot? So hence, that's how I got in. It was a week before school started that I finally found out where I was going to go to school, and I had no alternative plan. I was that convinced. My mom said, if this is where you're going to go, we're going to figure it out. And sure enough, finally ended up getting in, doing very well, loved the school, had a great time. And I think that was now looking back, like these, there are points in your life where someone does something or you experience something. And at the time it was devastating, but it really just showed to me that it, it's not going to be an easy road, but if this is where you want to go, then you got to push forward and be persistent. And when, when I learned of the, the word grit, I thought, geez, do I know what that word means? And my mom really has been an example for me as to what that was. And then mom, my grandparents, so just really thinking through so after, when I was in high school, I had a chance to go to the, to the White House, and I was standing outside the fence. Wait, wait, wait. Back up a second. You don't just throw out, <laughs> I had a chance to go to the White House. <laughs> How is it that you had a chance to go to the White House? So the school had this opportunity for it. Um, it was a travel. We were doing travel. It was like a junior travel day, and we, we were able to go up there and see how politics worked. And I remember sitting, well, literally standing, because remember the fences, there was no barricades then, but just the fences, and looking in and going, I'm going to work there one day. I'm gonna, I don't know how I'm going to get here, but I'm going to work here one day. And so it's, it sort of set my path, and I'm really used to like, okay, if this is where you want to go, then we're going to get there. We're going to figure out how you get there. So years later, uh, had the opportunity to work for the Obama administration, at the Department of Commerce. So I didn't work inside all the time, but across the street, figured that was very close, close enough. Got to go to meetings in the White House. Uh, so that was a tremendous experience. So to your question of how I end up in Atlanta, is I was only at in the Obama administration as a term employee. So I knew I only had two to three years. And then this opportunity, a friend of mine, we worked together for a long time. Uh, he said, oh, so there's an opportunity here in Atlanta. Come work to, in Atlanta. Well, let me back you up for one minute. You mentioned that you went to a girl's secondary school. What was that like? Do you think that there was something special about being in an all-girls environment? I absolutely loved it. It was the best time of my life. Um, it was being able to come to school and not have to worry about impressing someone or something else. It was about really studying, and it was a bond that we created amongst ourselves, so much so that I have more friends from my high school years than I do my college years. Uh, we still get together every once in a while. Uh, I will have to put a shout out to friends. I actually am still friends with Katrina and Lori, which we met when we were in kindergarten. That's Five, when we were five years old, uh, and we still talk. And so, but we she, we both went to the same grammar school, same high school, and it really just solidified those bonds. I think it's unique about creating a level of sisterness, of acceptance of who you are, and really getting your, that foundation strong so when you take on the next step. So I had a tremendous experience at an all-girls school, and hence, I think that's why I was very open to Hopefully one of my own daughters would go to an all-girls school, which they now have. 
That's fantastic. Now, you talked about being in the Obama administration, but how did you get there? You said whack in the days when you were in high school, you're going to be there. How did you get there? What was that journey? So in this specific case, my journey starts with me in the city of Los Angeles. So I worked in the city of Los Angeles uh, under the mayor, and then it was Mayor Hahn. And for Mayor Hahn, worked at the state of California. So it was a job in between, but got to the state of California and worked with then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, which if you've never worked for a governor is one thing, but to work for a famous governor like Arnold Schwarzenegger was was just a whole other uh, experience. But it, it was very memorable, and I think we were able to accomplish many things in his administration. But it was there that I met and had the opportunity to work with a friend of mine, which was Brian McGowan. And he came to me one day and said, oh, he said, I want to work at the White House. And so we literally started this plan about how we were going, how he wanted to get there and how we were going to get there. So he, we literally called everyone we could think of, started like, how are we going to get this path? And he was able to then land a job with the assistant secretary position at EDA, the Economic Development Administration. So once he got the job, then he was like, okay, we got to go. And so it was aligning myself with someone who had sort of the same vision as I did about making a difference, committed community, and both wanting to work in the White House. You started by saying your teacher said you had to go into political science, but it sounds like economics came up along the way. How did that happen? And oftentimes, you know, people are not inclined to make a change. You've made quite a few changes. Tell us a little bit about that. I think for, for me, really, the only consistency was change. I, I was very used to changing. I, I moved, geez, at least... From Rosemead, where I grew up with my mom and my dad, but then I moved to the San Fernando Valley. Well, I moved to Mexico, actually, because I wanted international experience. I ended up majoring in political science, international experience, international relations, and said, wait a minute. If I'm going to do international relations, i got to have some sort of international experience. So I had two. I have My mom is from Mexico. I'm a first generation. And my father was from Serbia. So at Serbia at the time was in a civil war. So it was like, couldn't go there. So it's okay, I'm going to Mexico. So other, and I will tell you that we, I didn't speak much Spanish at the home because the common language in the house was English. My dad didn't speak Spanish. My mom didn't speak Serbian. So we would speak English in the house. Then the interesting thing is land in Mexico. And I don't know if you've ever been to another country to look for a job. I went to go look for a job and I remember seeing um, traffic agent and I thought it was the, policeman in the street because the lights wouldn't work so I was like I'm not gonna apply for that job it ends up being it's a logistics job so long story short get a secretary job get promoted and then become the director for marketing so for secretary to director of marketing but that was one of the ways that really for me it was about how do you kind of see the vision the focus and then really go after it so after then after going from um, Mexico, came back to the United States, my father fell sick and so said, nope, but family's first. So quit my job. I was married at the time and said, told my husband, I got to go take care of dad. He was like, nope, go take care of dad. And so we ended up moving to the U.S. That's how I went and came back. <laughs> but anyways, 
that was a long story, but then got the job at the state of California working with Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's fantastic. And you said you came to Atlanta again because a friend had suggested it. Um, tell me more about that move and about Atlanta and what you're doing today. So what I love the most about what I'm doing today and what I've done in throughout my career, it really has been about how do you, one, make a difference. So what I always thought was I want to make the world just a little bit better than when I got here. And then two is how do you make a difference to do that? And then how do you do it in a way, though, that you are being respectful of the folks you're working with and you meet them where they are and you help them achieve the success they want? It's not what I want. It's the success that the community person wants. And so that to me has been something that I've hoped I've not only set for myself personally, but set for where I am here in Atlanta. It's about how do we do things different? And it's, it's creating impactful communities in a way the community wants them. And so that's what I've dedicated myself to. Here at Invest Atlanta, we are about empowering. It's about equity. We have fundamentally changed how we've seen things so let me give you an example we give out grants uh and so one year i said i want to pull out all of the grants that we've given in this part of town and i said i want to see uh what the ethnic breakdown is of those that we've awarded i honestly thought there was going to be no issue when i got the numbers back and saw that only about 50 percent of our grants went to african americans in the part of town that's the highest concentration of African-Americans, I nearly faint. I go, this is crazy. This is, if, if equity's at our core, how could we be doing this? And so I then said, I remember reaching out to Jennifer, a colleague, and I said, Jennifer, can you give me a list of all of the applications we've denied? And I want to see the ethnic breakdown of those. So do you want to guess how many applications we denied for African-Americans? I don't even want to begin to guess. Zero. So they weren't applying. So they weren't applying. So this has to be one of the biggest aha moments in my career. You can open up a grant opportunity and say, oh, it's for everyone. It's for all women. It's for all ethnic type, everybody from all communities. But if it's asking for, I want to see architectural renderings. I want to see EIRs. I want to see your capital stack. That all is very expensive. So we were unduly uh, making it difficult for everyone to make to apply for our grants. Now, the challenge is that these are taxpayer dollars, so we have to do the due diligence. So you have to keep up the high level of standard, but it's unattainable. So it was this conundrum we were in. So what we did is we changed it up a little bit. We said, okay, if you are interested in our grant, we opened up a pre-development loan fund. That means come to us, we'll give you a loan, no payments for for six months, no interest, go do your due diligence, do your architectural engineering, your EIR, your application, and then apply to us. And then hopefully we put it, you get the award and we wrap around the loan in the construction project. So you've never paid. So we, we started to think of things different because you it's not enough to say an application's available, anyone can apply. Yeah, but if you need $200 to apply or if you need to have all of this pictures or everything else you design, then you really are excluded. And the question is you don't want to exclude. So we've consciously now, everything we do, we're thinking through, okay, what could be the impediment? Why would someone not respond? What are we doing? What is in the application that's making it difficult that we're not getting to the people we want to serve? What is? What are your grants for? 
So we have a wide range. The best thing to think about Invest Atlanta, and we are unique throughout the nation. There are not that many of us, this type of organization. Two sides of the house. On one side of the house, you have the economic development efforts. These are our business attraction, retention, expansion. So you can think of with Athena Health came here. Uh, big organizations come. That's the arm that attracts them. Or current businesses. How do you help them grow through small business loans? So we actually have a revolving loan fund in-house. So we work with those companies. And that's on the economic development side. On the community development side, we focus on neighborhood development. So we're going to see key commercial corridors. We're going to do big projects, so affordable housing. So we'll try to put in a piece of the capital stack. So we're not the entire project, but we are a piece that then enables the affordable housing. Then we, so that's on the high level, but for the individual person, for seniors, we could do owner-occupied rehab, meaning if you have roof problems, you're leaking, you have pe lead paint, we could come in and for $50,000, we'll give you a grant to fix those things and we'll actually have someone fix it for you. So now we even have anti-displacement. So what are we doing to ensure that legacy residents don't feel pushed out? And this is a big deal because Atlanta's growing and the one group of community members you want to keep is to ensure that our legacy residents don't feel forced out. And why would they feel forced to sell? Because everything around them, the value is increasing and their taxes increase. And when you're on fixed income, it becomes very, very difficult for you. This is amazing. I mean, really exciting work you're doing. And I have to say, one of the things you, you mentioned was the fact you wanted to make a difference. You clearly are making a difference. And often people think, oh, corporations, I can't work with them because I want to make a difference. What would you tell those people? Can you make a difference when you're working in the corporate world? You're attracting investment to Atlanta. How does that make a difference? Yeah. So we work a lot with the corporate world because oftentimes we're the implementer of the programs, but I don't have all the deep pockets that some of these corporations have. So if you think about my owner-occupied rehab program to fix seniors' homes, or if you think of my down payment assistance program, that's giving uh, individuals at $80,000 a year the ability to buy their first home. Think of teachers. That's what teachers are making, right? First-time teachers. Let's ensure they can buy a home in the city next to the students that they're providing education for. And so for us, it's very important to ensure we're creating programs that allow for alignment. But for us to do that, I need funding. And the government can't support these programs all on their own. So that's where corporations have come in and are in play, which is what is so exciting about Atlanta. I've been in many other cities, and I've never seen the corporate culture. It, it's sort of this unsaid rule in Atlanta that you're going to get involved. If you want to be part of this Atlanta community, we will welcome you with open arms. But you need to get back, and you need to become part of the culture of who we are. And so you see corporations coming up to the plate to help with uh, edu early education programs, help with home ownership, help with workforce training. That's what makes this city so unique. How about higher education? If you look at Atlanta, it has amazing sources of higher education. Does that play a role in attracting businesses to Atlanta? If I had to say there's any one change that I have seen in my time, in my career in economic development, there was always this mentality of where, where I want to go, people are going to come and my workforce. That is not the case anymore. The case is our younger generations, our first going to go where it's a great city 
sustainable. I want to be part of the community and the, the culture that's here and threaded here. So if a company wants to attract that workforce, they need to be in those exact same cities. So it's all education. To me, the fact that we have so many colleges and universities all within the region is what makes us even more attractive because not only corporations looking for diversity, which they're going to find here in Atlanta, but diversity in terms of different studies, creatives, technical, all here in Atlanta is definitely a value add. And that's what the number one question people ask me first when I'm interviewing to try to attract the company here. I want to see what does your workforce look like? Well, my workforce really is going to be a reflection of my educational institutions that are actually creating that pipeline of my workforce. I love that. I have to ask you, what would you say to young people today who are coming into that workforce? What, what do, should they be thinking about? You talked about grit. You talked about knocking on the door, how you got to where you are. What advice would you give? I, I think that the glass ceiling is still there. I think we have to help each other as women. I think we need to set role models. And so you have to give back. So to me, it's not only continue. I will continue to look forward because I feel the more I'm able to achieve, that's going to be better for me, but for those around me and those that are coming up. So in my professional career, it's not only about looking forward, it's looking forward, right, left, and back. Who is in the pipeline behind me and how do you help develop them? And I think if we really had that mindset, like when my mom, obviously she was not going to play baseball, but because of her, I had the opportunity to baseball. How many other women have come up behind us? I think only together as a community are we going to really make changes when we all pull in together to help each other. And there's a tremendous amount of opportunity because we're so unique. We are so important to the table. We have to have a voice. And so we have to keep trying to do that together. Eloisa, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Are there any last words of encouragement or advice you'd like to give to our listeners? Well, as you can see, I adore my mother and my grandmother. But I would say, take the time to say thank you to those around you because we don't get here by ourselves. And if I didn't call out my daughter, Alejandra, who better be listening to her mom's podcast, who goes to Agnes Scott, um, I would just say, keep it up. You guys are moving the needle and you really are the future. And I know that sounds just very, oh, it's it, it, everybody says it, but it is true. We can move the needle and more than ever. I mean, there, there are topics that I'm not going to be able to influence, but this generation will. I think about, you, you think about how we define women, how we define our bodies, how we define work how we help and support our children. These are going to be the challenges that women are going to have to come together and fix because somehow something is changing in this country, which we have to ensure that those rights are not taken away. Eloisa, thank you for sharing your time and your story with us. To our listeners, I hope you are encouraged and inspired by Dr. Clementich's journey. It is one of the many that we are thrilled to share with you. Thank you for joining us and thank you for listening. And thank you to our producer, Sydney Perry, for making this podcast possible. I am Leo Kadia Zach, and this is Journeys to Leadership.